People from South Asian communities are known to be up to six times more likely to have type 2 diabetes than the general population, and that can increase the risk of infection. From what we know about coronavirus, people from BAME backgrounds are more vulnerable to complications. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. Today's episode is with Dr. Asim Malhotra, crusading cardiologist, and he and his colleagues have just produced a new paper, and it deals with the enhanced risk that ethics people have with regard to our current viral issue. So a very, very increased risk, which is being put down sometimes to just social status and that. But uh, I think there's a lot more to it. So great to see you again, Asim. Ivor, always great to chat to you, mate. Excellent. Yeah, it's great. And uh, this new paper that's come out or you've brought out, it's relatively short and sharp. It's an easy read. It's not full of all kinds of complex science, but it's calling attention to this huge issue affecting the world and how it disproportionately is affecting people uh, of various ethnicities, which is very unfortunate and needs to be clarified and acted on, right? Absolutely, Ivor. So the title of the paper published in the journal, it's a peer-reviewed uh, journal called The Physician. And uh, the title of the paper is Poor Metabolic Health is a Major Issue for Increased COVID-19 Mortality in BAME Groups. BAME being specifically Black, Asian, and other ethnic minority groups. And many people are aware around the world, in the US and the UK, that people from ethnic minority backgrounds have been disproportionately affected. Now, what my analysis and my colleagues' analysis looked at was to try and see how can we explain this issue where significant proportions of people from BAME backgrounds have been disproportionately affected in terms of death from COVID-19. And in fact, most of the healthcare staff, the overall majority of healthcare staff either in the, in the NHS uh, that have been affected, um, you know, uh, are from BAME backgrounds. So, there's clearly something going on, and, and you're absolutely right. It's not something that can be simply explained by just socioeconomic factors, but I want to come on to that as well because I think it's important. And what we found, and in fact it's there in the literature, first and foremost, is when you correct either for these metabolic conditions and the comorbidities, there is no increased risk of death. No, and if there is one, it's going to be small. Of course, every bit of research you have to you know, look in the wider context of things, but let's just say it is the, you know, the title of the paper is a major issue. I think it is the major issue to explain what's going on. And when we talk about metabolic health, I think it's important for the listeners and the viewers to really understand that this is something that is the major issue when it comes to heart disease, when it comes to the conditions such as type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, the major issue affecting healthcare. And metabolic health in individuals is not being assessed. And uh, when we look at metabolic health, we look at five particular parameters, which include blood glucose. So HbA1c, um, you know, should be less than 5.7. So you're not pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. Your blood pressure should be less than 120 over 80. So you're not pre-hypertensive or hypertensive. Waist circumference. Now, this is interesting. For South Asians, the ideal waist circumference for a man should be less than 90 centimeters as opposed to 102 for Caucasians. And for women, it's less than 85, whereas it's, whereas it's 90 centimeters for Caucasian women. So again, that's not being checked. And it's not being checked anyway for anybody, to be honest. Waste circumference is not part of risk assessment tools. And then you've got your blood triglycerides and your HDL, the so-called so -called good cholesterol. 
Now, when you have three of those factors, adverse factors, um, then you have metabolic syndrome. And if we just forget about COVID for a second, if you look at uh, people who have the metabolic syndrome who have a normal BMI either, okay, so normal BMI, body mass index between 18 and 25, because we all keep talking about obesity, they have the highest risk of all-cause mortality or cardiovascular events over a 10-year period, okay? Threefold higher risk than someone who's otherwise metabolically healthy. They're even higher risk than people who are obese. So this is a huge cohort of people. So what I'm saying is, if you're normal weight, you may have the illusion of protection if your metabolic health isn't being measured and it's not being routinely checked in primary care. And, um, and therefore, it's not being managed and acted upon. And this is disproportionately affecting people from black, Asian, and other ethnic minority backgrounds. So to give you an example, data from the United States reveals, when you look at normal BMI, 43.6% of South Asians are metabolically unhealthy. That's an extraordinarily large figure. And that then becomes around 38% in Hispanics, 32% uh, in Blacks, 31% in Chinese, and, um, and about 20% in Caucasians. So still one in five Caucasians are adversely affected with metabolic health abnormalities, significant ones at a normal BMI. How do we explain it all? Well, we looked at this in the paper, and there are different um, uh, you know, mechanisms or understandings or, or hypothesis involved. But in essence, people of different ethnic backgrounds seem to develop these conditions at different levels of body fat. So to simplify it, people from South Asian backgrounds develop these conditions at lower levels of body fat than say people who are Caucasian, in particular visceral fat and, and liver fat. And we know what's driving that. It's, it's the diet predominantly. It's diet and high in sugar and refined carbohydrates. So that's one area that needs highlighting and of course, being of South Asian background myself, my own observations, but looking at data that's available, there is a big issue amongst the South Asian diet in terms of it being very high in starch and sugar, okay, which is going to be a problem. If you've already got a genetic predisposition, it makes it even worse. So that's one area, I think, the diet. The second area is physical activity. And what I discovered on that was absolutely shocking. So as you know, most of the physical activity guidelines suggest that you need to do being, doing 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity a week. Okay? And, and we know there's lots of data on that being almost optimal for health, right? You don't need to do too much, too little. That's kind of the optimal value. Almost all of that research is on white people. The research that's been done, and I refer to a paper in PLOS One published in 2016, a cross-sectional study, went in with a hypothesis that South Asians may need to do more activity levels to get the same cardio-respiratory, cardio-metabolic benefits, based upon the fact that there is good evidence to suggest that we genetically have lower cardio-respiratory fitness, partly maybe because of lower, genetically lower muscle mass, which also may be the reason why we get type 2 diabetes five to 10 years earlier than Caucasians, why the prevalence is two to six times higher. And let's not forget, Actually, either a huge, very concerning figure is India, which has you know a population of over one billion people. Um, you know, 52% of cardiovascular deaths in India occur prematurely in people under the age of 70. These are people who are middle class. This is not people living in rural areas, people from poor backgrounds. These are people with money, people who are middle class. 52% will get a heart, suffer a heart attack, a stroke, or sorry, will 
will, will um, you know, those people that die of heart attack stroke, half of those are under 70 in India. So that's a big issue. But coming back to cardio uh, exercise, what this study found is that to get the same benefits from exercise, people from South Asia need to be doing 233 minutes a week of activity, you know? Now, of course, it's one study, it needs to be replicated, but that stuff is out there. Um, it's got very strong, you know, uh, reasonable validity. Uh, and when you look at the actual physical activity levels either of, certainly in the UK, of people in, this, in, in England, uh, sorry, in the United Kingdom, Caucasians, all adults, 62% are meeting the chief medical officer's guidelines for physical activity, okay, versus 55% of blacks and 54% of South Asians. Okay, sorry, actually, it's 56% of blacks and 55% of South Asians, to be, to be clear. But basically, we're doing less than even the 150 minutes, and we may probably need to do more. So this is another big area. So this is pretty shocking stuff. Then we look at vitamin D status. I know that's something that you have had a, a, done many discussions on, Ivan. and you have a lot of insight into this, looking at the data. So let's look at vitamin D status. We know vitamin D is, um, has an essential role in the immune system and innate adaptive immunity. You know, it controls many genes that are involved in, uh, in, in the immune system, including white blood cells, including optimization of immune function. And vitamin D deficiency, as you know, has been shown to be very strongly correlated with adverse um, outcomes from COVID-19 mortality. Okay? Whether supplements help is another discussion. But certainly from previous data on respiratory infections, it seems quite clear that people with severe vitamin D deficiency have significant benefits in reducing the risk of pneumonia and chest infections if they take vitamin D supplements or certainly get their levels back to normal range. Now, how prevalent is vitamin D deficiency? In uh, both South Asians and Blacks, more in South Asians in the UK, data suggests that the overwhelming majority are either severely deficient or deficient. This is not being measured routinely in primary care, and it's not being acted upon. So this is absolutely shocking. Absolutely, it's outrageous in my view. And as far as I'm concerned, all of these things combined, Ivor, um, really amount to an element of racism in, in uh, not just the fact that we know racism is endemic in the NHS, in terms of the way patients are managed, in terms of the way doctors feel they have been treated through the NHS, but also in the medical literature, in the publicity of it, and the management of it. Now, some of that mismanagement is lack of knowledge, and a lot of it is because we know the most effective way to deal with metabolic syndrome is through lifestyle changes. Yet modern medicine is managing risk factors with individual risk factors at higher levels, okay? So high blood pressure as opposed to prehypertension, type two diabetes, you know, high cholesterol, no one's really managing higher than normal triglycerides or low HDL, and waist circumference isn't managed because we look at obesity. So really, a lot of these factors aren't being looked at, but the ones that are are being managed with medications, not with lifestyle changes. And the data we have tells us that you know, and I know, and people involved in this space who've been doing research in this area for a long time, is that we can reverse metabolic syndrome within weeks of just changing diet. So we conclude our paper and say that what, as a matter of urgency, NHS risk assessment tools for everybody, this isn't just racial bias, for everybody needs to include, include markers of metabolic health. And then you need, we need to essentially manage it with lifestyle prescriptions. And if we don't, if we don't manage this, then there may, may be even more misery and devastation 
when the next pandemic comes around. So this is a major public health issue that needs to be tackled head on. Yeah, no, I'd agree with, with everything you said there. And all of these factors are interacting too. So for instance, the diet and the exercise are both important. So you might be able to do a little less exercise if your diet is excellent. Or if your diet is not so good, more exercise might help a little. But I, I agree there's an element of racism because, yeah, ignorance is some excuse. But when all of this is in the literature, uh, it's not so much of an excuse. And I notice in the media, there's this constant drive or even within medicine to try and blame it on social class. But as you say, it's not that they're almost studiously avoiding the real root causes and deflecting to social status. And as you said, I think 25 doctors, uh, medical staff who sadly passed away in this issue in the UK, I, I think uh, 24 were, were ethnics. So it's clearly not social status, it's something else. And I'd agree totally. The vitamin D thing is, is huge. We have four or five human studies now. They're associational, but they're well uh, corrected for confounding. And there may be up to 10 times the risk if you're below 20 nanograms of a serious outcome or death than if you're above 30. And like you say, the status of ethnics in the UK is shocking, even compared to Caucasians. And the Caucasians, for me, is shocking. Everyone excuse me, everyone should be at around 35 nanograms evolutionary level, regardless of skin color. And uh, people are an average of around 20 odd with huge tracts of people down to 10. So with the vitamin D, I'm glad you said the supplement thing, because look, if someone is deficient, supplements no doubt will help. And there are studies showing that with immune function, etc. But if you take a low vitamin D person, and this is known now, who's down at 18 or something terrible, so they're at huge risk to many diseases, including our current issue. Uh, if you take that person and fix their diet, fix their insulin resistance and eat nutrient dense food and cut out all those crappy carbs, the health will jump up. But interestingly, the vitamin D status in the blood test will jump right up. So vitamin D is acting as a marker for underlying uh, metabolic health. So it's just another great marker. So I'd prefer to get it up by sun exposure, nitric oxide, healthy UV exposure without burning. Get it up by fixing the diet, by removing the insulin resistance, and get it up through all those real root cause fixing ways. And, and like you say, sure, if you're low, you can supercharge your efforts to get back on track by taking supplements as well. I mean, do everything. But do it now. Absolutely, Ivan. I, I completely agree with you. And I think, uh, I mean, the other issue that also has been raised that you, we, we've, we've discussed before is that there certainly seems to be some association as well with metabolic syndrome of vitamin D deficiency because body fat seems to sequester vitamin D from the blood as well. So, you know, you add that into the equation. Uh, certainly, we know that metabolic syndrome insulin resistance is very prevalent in South Asians. So think about this. We've got a genetic predisposition, essentially what we're saying, that is then exacerbated by poor lifestyle factors. So both together is a big issue. It's a big problem and um, it needs to be addressed. And in terms of the social stuff, I think we can't ignore it. In fact, in the, the, but you're right. It shouldn't be the distraction from looking at the biology because there are things we can do to correct it. And of course, I think we all have a role to play in reducing social injustice, in reducing health inequalities, because many people either you know, the reality is this, that, that they can't even make two ends meet because of job insecurity and how much they're earning. We can't even get to the stage about talking to them about eating healthily because they just can't, it's very difficult for them to afford it. 
And that's where government needs to come in and needs to help them. And in fact, when you look at the social impact, social determinants of health, actually that's the biggest impact on our life expectancy. So if you go you know, from uh, one part of New York, say the South Bronx to Midtown Manhattan, the life expectancy difference is you know, about 16 years. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and what we don't discuss, which is interesting, when people keep talking about social determinants, it sounds a bit vague, but there's a biology going on here. And the best explanation is psychosocial stress, really. You know, people who have, if you've got excess demand and loss of control in your life, right, you know, in terms of the kind of jobs you're in, in terms of the money you're earning, in terms of being, if you like, exploited, you know, having loss of control in your life with anything, it's a huge psychological stress burden from a very early age, you know, and you combine that with the lifestyle changes, with alcoholism, with people suffering abuse, even racism, that can knock 10 to 15 years, even 20 years off your lifespan. That is extraordinary. That is more than any, anything that we can do from a lifestyle perspective either. Yeah, no, and I'd agree. The social thing, um, the reason I say distraction is I think a lot of the social thing actually drives people into poor diets and poor practices and poor sleep. So, yeah, it is a factor, but they should be also highlighting the more proximate in your face uh, addressable absolutely yeah. for people straight away and i think we have to work on both you know i think as a society we need to recognize we're all interconnected we know the covid 19 stuff has affected certain people of course people have different opinions about the whole lockdown issue but certainly we all know we're reliant on each other whether it's the people that drive the buses or the public transport and a lot of those people come from these sorts of backgrounds i think to function in a healthy society in a just society we need to think about everybody, not just ourselves. If we help everybody, if we go with the intention of thinking about how can we help everybody with what we do, we're automatically helping ourselves. You know, I think we need to think about that in that sense. So I think that's just an area again, um, but you're absolutely right. We need to address the biology, do what we can in the short term, but simultaneously work on measures and you know, pressurize government to make sure that people have got good health. In this modern age, you know, people in the Western world, even developing countries, the Western world, there are people that you know, haven't got good housing, can't afford heating in the winter, can't afford good food to eat, healthy food. I mean, this is absolutely shocking. And I think any human being wouldn't be happy if they saw what was going on and think that we're living in a, in a productive, just society, because we're not, we're absolutely not. And our health is suffering because of it. Yeah, no, it's pretty grim in fairness. And the social deprivation and the challenges you talk about there, you've got vast numbers of people who are living in these so-called food deserts where they have to shop in local small stores and most of the food there is junk. So they don't even get access to real good food and they don't get the education because as we know, the education is very poor, the food pyramid, and all they need is a simple me message. Uh, meat, fish, eggs, and nutrient-dense, you know, ancestral foods, along with vegetables that are not too sugary, because most of our population is kind of diabetic now, so we don't want too much starch and potatoes and rice. And um, that simple message about real whole foods pounded to the people could, could really move the needle. But instead, we get this food pyramid, kind of processed food supporting bread and pasta kind of message, which is a disaster. And it's become normalized, isn't it? You know, mm. that's a problem. So people have, uh, we've normalized what Zoe Harkham describes as fake food. 
and uh, people actually don't know what they're putting into their mouth, where it's come from, how it's damaging their body, the additives, preservatives, we're only just learning now about how potentially damaging they could be in the long term. So um, yeah, we need a big shift. But uh, I think you know one of the things hopefully that will come out of this has been a lot of attention after the sort of tragic killing murder, if you like, of George Floyd, is it's highlighted all of these injustices. And in fact, the, the social injustices and racial injustices have also highlighted the health injustices. And it again comes back to metabolic health, you know, it, so. It does for sure. And for instance, I mean, you know, it's a thought experiment, if you will. But if you got everyone in the next six months before they're because this is quite clearly turning up as seasonal in, in very many aspects, as you would have expected, to be honest, this problem. But before the next winter or post winter, uh, if you got most people to resolve their metabolic syndrome, resolve their essential diabetes, particularly on older people, getting them metabolically healthy, because they can be, it's just many in homes are getting gruel diets and they really have no hope. But if you resolved all that metabolic disease, leptin resistance, we know there'd be way lower impacts in real terms when the, the next seasonal uh, kind of recurrence. Ivor, in fact, I'm glad you've raised that. So on that note, yesterday, um, there was a BBC news story I was involved with, basically, you know, uh, helped be part of and set up. And it was based upon the film director, Gurinder Chadha, who's a very famous uh, British Indian of Sikh origin film director. And she's very well known, certainly in the Indian subcontinent. She's seen as a, uh, as a, a hero, a heroine amongst many people in the South Asian community because she was the director of that film called Bend It Like Beckham that many people may remember. And it was really a groundbreaking film at the time because it was basically highlighting you know, areas of racism but pushing the boundaries of getting a, a film about South Asians, in particular the stories about a, a young girl that wanted to play football and, and how her family reacted to that. And it was, it was entertaining, it was funny, and it had a very strong message. And Gurinder herself has type 2 diabetes and she's very overweight. So during lockdown, we were talking and I advised her to follow the kind of protocol I advise around cutting the starch and the sugar, the ultra processed foods, all that kind of stuff. And she's in essence almost reversed her type 2 diabetes. Her HbA1c has gone down to 6.8 from 8.6. This happened in a month. So this was an, a BBC news story. She changed her diet. She talks, she's a big foodie, but she talks about, you know, that actually she enjoys, she really enjoys cooking low carb in a South Asian diet. She's, and, and you know, and that, um, you know, I'll, I'll send, I'll share that clip with you, but um, that was very nice. That was a two and a half minute clip. And I was there also emphasizing exactly what you just said, that really what we need to do is we need to make, let people know that you can reverse metabolic syndrome within weeks of changing lifestyle. This needs to be sorted out. And of course, the risk assessment that they're doing to try and assess people's risk. The problem we've got, Ivor, unfortunately, is you know a huge proportion of the of the healthcare work you know health NHS workforce is from the Indian subcontinent about 25 to 30 percent you know the reason the NHS has even survived this long is because of people from those backgrounds who came over in the 60s and 70s including my parents from India to work in the NHS and uh, and, and unfortunately there is already ongoing from what I know and I won't name places or hospitals or but I'm getting a lot of feedback from people that they are afraid, trusts are afraid and, and, and senior doctors are afraid to highlight this issue because they're worried that their staff is going to get scared. I mean, that is absolutely extraordinary. So there is a big problem that needs to be tackled and we need to just keep talking about it and exposing what's going on because that racism is still very prevalent even right now. And you know, 
there's some amazing leadership being shown by certain ethnic uh, backgrounds. And I'll have to say, Professor Sonetra Gupta uh, is a professor of epidemiology in Oxford University. And since March has been coming out with incredibly uh, good science around herd immunity and other controversial topics and is showing amazing leadership. So I might also put a link to uh, a couple of her interviews because we really have, we seem to have, I've heard it said that some immunologists now are being called immunology deniers because they're actually denying our cross immunity to these types of problems, denying the T cell response and trying to maintain that only antibody test positives show who's been exposed. So a big shout out to Professor Sonetra Gupta. Fantastic, mate. Well. Absolutely. Good stuff. Great. So well, okay. onwards and upwards, I think, Ivor. I think it's, um, you know, it's metabolic syndrome. Let's just keep banging on about it because people still don't know what it is. Most doctors, if you ask them, probably won't be able to define it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, patients need to be aware of this. This is not a deliberate act. This is just part of our training, part of not keeping up with the evidence, part of the fact that guidelines are being really influenced and dictated by the drug industry. And there's no drug that sorts metabolic syndrome out, mate. That, and that's why exactly. people don't know about it. And it's absolutely, it's shocking. It's corrupt. Um, I'm very happy to go on the record and say that. And I've said it before, um, but enough is enough. You know, our duty as doctors is to scientific integrity and to our patients. And all I am doing and other people in this space are doing is just doing our duty. But that means speaking out. We can't be silent about it anymore. And, you know, I, I've, I've spoken with many sort of leading physicians who are, who have got leadership roles in the NHS who are very good people. And one of them who I won't name, who's a GP. And when I shared this information with him, he said, Asim, this is shocking. He said, this is shocking. I am not, we are not measuring this routinely in general practice. We are not measuring, but the data is very clear that this is important. For sure, Asim. And you know, this could be a rallying cry as well for all those medical staff, doctors, and even professors and universities out there who are aware of this and other challenges with our current situation, and maybe just take a little more risk and be more out outspoken because leadership is crucial. Yeah, and, and I uh, think, absolutely, and I think the other thing to say, and it may sound a bit controversial, but it's something I do all the time, but I think people need to also understand that there is, and this is, you know, not, not necessarily deliberate sort of um, done with any sort of malice or intent, but it's part of the system failure, is many of these doctors are not speaking out because they take money from the drug industry. Why are diabet diabetologists and endocrinologists not shouting about this? Yeah, you need to ask absolutely. your question, who is funding this doctor? Where are they, how have they got their career? You know, what, where have they got on their career ladder and how much is being influenced by the drug industry? Because if it's very clear, it's not, not rocket science. If people start reversing metabolic syndrome, improving their blood pressure, their type two diabetes, the drug industry is gonna suffer. But they've been making money for a very, very long time with really what is misinformation and unscientific nonsense. And to be honest, they've got all the power and the money. Let's actually make them work for something that's going to make a difference in people's lives. Let them innovate and change and actually develop decent drugs or help people reverse their metabolic syndrome through other ways. Yeah, that's the way it's got to go. We not have any yeah. sympathy for them, either. No. We should have no sympathy for these greedy organizations that have been killing for profit for way too long. Well, yeah, corporate avarice has basically undermined the whole of society in my mind. And it's about time people stood up and pushed back. And there's a great example in the UK 
I mean, amazing leadership when Nice or NIC came out with a 10% risk to have automatic statin. And in fairness, the NHS doctors rose up, voted, and 75% they said, we're not doing this. It doesn't make scientific sense. Yeah. Great example. Yeah, I, I, I remember that very well. <laughs> you were you were in the middle of it, I'm sure. So maybe we'll finish just with people. Google metabolic syndrome. Know the real markers. Metabolic syndrome. LDL is not included in the list. They don't even bother. So Neither LDL or body mass index. The no. two biggest industries: LDL, pharma, BMI, yeah. food industry, exercise industry. Not even included. What does that tell you, mate? Exactly. So the real ones are low HDL, high triglycerides, high blood pressure, waist measurement too large, and blood sugars. Bang. You've got the five of them there. That's modern chronic disease. If you add in GGT and serum ferritin and some more measures, great, all the better. But just don't be thinking LDL because you're just making a fool of yourself. Vitamin D status. Yo, yeah, because that's a master marker that reflects many of these processes going wrong it's not just the supplements it's getting it up through nutrient dense real food diet healthy sun exposure without burning and yeah supplements if you're really low turbocharge your recovery great stuff mate onwards and upwards absolutely go for it thanks to see next time all the best <laughs> And actually, we'll just finish with, uh, as Asim mentioned there, Gorinda Chada, the film director, who's had an incredible success with the right low-carb diet over the period of lockdown. Thank you. Right, they like flour, but they're much more nutritious. Within the Asian community, food is central to who we are, our culture, uh, how we express our love. And then basically griddle them. When we start looking at how to change our eating habits and lifestyle, it goes right to the core of who we are uh, you know, as a community. Because I am a foodie, don't get me wrong, I am a foodie. During lockdown, Gorinda Chada reversed her type 2 diabetes and lost more than a stone. I am overweight, you know, uh, I was more overweight than I am now. And I think for my kids, there was this real fear that I, I had some of the symptoms of people who were adversely affected. The next day, I said, that's it. I am going to change everything. Put them all in a bowl. The director, most commonly known for her film, Bend It Like Beckham, is now urging others of South Asian heritage to do the same. This period really is a great time to start experimenting with alternative ways of cooking. I love aloo gobi. I made a film. Anyone can cook aloo gobi, but who can bend a ball like Beckham? Just go on, test it. Oh! Where do you normally play? In the park. I mean, what position? I think that the message is be mindful. Think about the foods you're eating and are they foods that are loving you? Are they loving your kidneys, your liver, your tummy? You know, it, it, is it good for you? Is it nourishing you? People from South Asian communities are known to be up to six times more likely to have type 2 diabetes than the general population, and that can increase the risk of infection. From what we know about coronavirus, people from BAME backgrounds are more vulnerable to complications. However, if we change our lifestyles in terms of eating better and doing more exercise, that risk is rapidly reduced within just a few weeks.
make your own versions of things like my... But giving up food like rice and bread can be difficult. Gurinder says it's about changing your mindset. The best way to love our loved ones is to be mindful of what you're eating. Bring your propensity to diabetes down, bring your obesity down and still enjoy food like I do, but just enjoy better food. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen and go to extratimemovie.com to see our fascinating new documentary on stopping and reversing heart disease.